First, I called up moderator of Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan, as we do every Friday, and I began asking Margaret about the new Speaker of the House, Louisiana Republican Mike Johnson, and why the House Republicans ended up choosing him for the position over other more moderate nominees. Three weeks in and change, I think Republicans wanted to... um get to a conclusion here and be able to move forward with a speaker so that they can legislate. Uh, Mike Johnson, a Republican from Louisiana, an evangelical Christian who was supportive of Donald Trump's efforts to deny the outcome of the 2020 election, who has opposed uh, same-sex marriage, uh, who has uh, vocally opposed uh, abortion and proposed a national ban on it. Um, his his record is, is newly being scrutinized now that he is speaker as uh, individuals here in Washington try to figure out what his vision will be for leadership at a time when that Republican caucus is extremely divided. Uh, Since he has been able to reach out to that harder right wing of the party, what does that signify in terms of uh, the direction Republicans will take here and whether they'll stay unified when it comes to voting? Right. How how was he able to become this speaker with that controversial record? Do you think that the more moderate Republicans would say, no, no, we want another nominee? Well, that's that's an interesting point to make. And it's something that we'd love to ask some of those um, more moderate Republicans who had uh, opposed someone with a similar, though somewhat different, but very similar profile in the form of Jim Jordan, who had stood and failed to win the votes. But we are getting ever closer to that November 17th government shutdown date. Uh, I do believe within the party there was this effort to just sort of land the plane so that they can move forward. But it's worth asking those questions of what is it that Mike Johnson did say to some of those moderate Republicans to uh, reassure them that he will continue to prioritize some of the things that some of the other committee leaders, for example, have said are priorities to them, like aid for Ukraine, for mm-hmm. example, things that some of the more harder line factions do, don't agree on. I did see on an interview uh, with Fox News uh, that he said he does support aid for Israel with right. you know, some hesitation that, you know, we don't I think he said we don't want to be dumping money from helicopters. Um, is that a, a sticking point or, or, or part of the, the package that Congress is working on right now? Aid for Israel as well? Well, Israel's already the largest recipient of U.S. foreign aid, period, full stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this request from President Biden would be to add uh, $10 billion or more in emergency aid to them to help with the immediate war that they are in the midst of. Uh, that is what President Biden asked for last week as part of that broader $106 billion national security package. So uh, what does that mean in terms of how this moves forward? We did have the Republican leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, say on Face the Nation last week that he fully supported uh, the contours of this package and, and linking all of these issues, the U.S. border, Ukraine, Israel, and uh, shoring up Asia against an aggressive uh, China. He wanted that to move together. It's not clear that the Speaker of the House will allow for that. Or, you know, are, are we going to be back in this position where um, there will be some moderate Republicans who have to work across the aisle with Democrats and not follow their Republican leader in order to move forward on legislation? It, it's all going to be uh, a developing story. And based on our interview, it seems a lot of Republicans in the House are avoiding interview opportunities and questions. So I asked Margaret if she's planning on having any of those Republicans in Congress on her show this Sunday, Face the Nation. Certainly, I I would love to ask some of those more national security minded Republicans if their uh, concerns were 
were met in terms of uh, continuing to support Ukraine, for example, um, in its fight against Vladimir Putin, some of those more traditional moderate Republicans. This Sunday, we will have uh, not a traditional uh, Republican, but rather uh, a so-called MAGA Republican, uh, J.D. Vance, the author who is now a Republican senator from the state of Ohio, who has also uh, raised questions about the fight against Vladimir Putin and instead says he just wants to see a sliver of that aid package move in an emergency fashion. He really only wants to see aid to Israel. So we're going to talk to him about that and and what this um, math will look like in both the Senate and the House. Uh, Republican leadership in the Senate says they they do believe they have the votes to uh, to move this. Okay, let's talk about the Israel-Hamas war, as you will also have the international director of the Red Cross on this Sunday. What is the humanitarian ask at this point? Well, there there is only a drop in the bucket of aid getting in, uh, according to the UN, according to the Red Cross. This morning, there was the significant announcement that any aid was allowed in by the uh, Red Cross, and that was in the form of medical supplies, including some war surgeons. Uh, the ICRC announced that this morning, along with some supplies, including tablets to turn contaminated dirty water into something that might be consumable by humans. Uh, they are saying more is needed to go in. So this is a space we're going to watch actively because this kind of humanitarian gesture provides potentially an opening. Uh, Remember, it's also the Red Cross that helped walk some of those released hostages Mm -hmm. uh, from Hamas captivity into safety. So we want to see what that developing story is with the Red Cross in the coming days as we appear to be moving ever closer to this so-called imminent uh, ground invasion by Israel. With still more than 200 hostages, still Americans among those hostages? They are believed to be, yes. The uh, State Department estimates that it's 10 unaccounted for. They use that language because they aren't um, absolutely positive that all of them are alive or in Hamas captivity. Some could have been uh, killed and just not identified as yet. But we are, are looking at a significant number there of the broader more than 200 hostages that Israel says Hamas took. So the pressure at this point from diplomats is to get the civilian hostages released as some form of humanitarian gesture. And that diplomacy is continuing behind the scenes. Uh, We'll have to see if it pays off. Well, all of the developments, of course, will happen on Face the Nation this Sunday with host Margaret Brennan. Margaret, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you. In the nation's northwest corner is Our resident historian Felix Bunnell joins us Friday mornings for All Over the Map. It's a quick look at stories behind local places. And this week, the city of Seattle's Department of Neighborhoods wants to hear from you about local places, past or present, that hold special meaning as part of a project they're calling Stories in Place. This sounds hey, like you I, designed I thought, it. I thought we do this. Wait a minute. <laughs> I, know, I was going to say, isn't this your game? Wait a second. <laughs> why, why am I doing this story? Okay, so Department of Neighborhoods, that's a pretty eclectic department. They manage the Pea Patch Program, Community Gardens, hmm. Historic Landmark Program, a Community Matching Grant, you know, to fund local improvement projects. They've also been focusing lately on storytelling as a way of connecting the human experience of Seattle with physical places and locations. We all get this in this room here, right? They've been collecting stories about Seattle for people for many years. They published them on a blog they call the Front Porch Blog. 
new initiative is called Stories in Place. The deadline is November 10th to submit your own story. And the story can be very short and very simple. I talked to Susie Phillipson from the Department of Neighborhoods. She emphasized that you don't have to be an experienced writer. You don't have to worry about creating some kind of complex narrative. Folks sometimes get intimidated about writing it down. But our experience has been that when we commission people or when we invite folks who don't see themselves as writers or creators to make something, they make something beautiful that people in the public identify with. And often they tell stories that help other people in the community feel less alone. So they feel more connected when they read things that are in everyday speech. You don't even have to live in Seattle, but the story or the feeling or the thought should relate to some specific place in the city. It could be a park, you know, a neon sign, some particular business, or maybe a concert or a special event. Uh, Susie sent me a few examples of what's been received so far. Uh, The meeting of a street corner where neighbors have gathered for years to share an annual block party. A park where parents were invited by their seven-year-old son to go birding and where they've been birding ever since for 20 years. And the Highland Park Improvement Club because it represents the past and the present as a way to socialize, provide mutual aid, and have fun for the whole neighborhood. You know, and these don't have to be happy stories, right? Um, They can be sad or painful memories because those can often be some of the most meaningful stories people share with each other. Now, Susie Phillipson describes this as an effort to collect stories that have to do with places, but without a lot of boundaries around what that means. And it's very easy to take part. Now, I had to ask, you know, compared to other city agencies that deal with, I don't know, wastewater or law enforcement or building codes, does this Stories in Place project make neighborhoods the most, air quote, hipster of the public (laughs) agencies in Seattle? The Department of Neighborhoods is really interested in talking to and having relationships with the community. So whatever that makes us, we are, we welcome that. And we just want to be in relationship and, um, and we want folks to share with us because then we can share that with the city. Yeah. And so the deadline to submit stories in place is Friday, November 10th. It's really easy to do. You just go to their blog and it, it seems like a great project for a classroom or a senior citizens group or some. And they'll take it in any language, too, especially if there's a group of people learning English or something. This mm-hmm. is like it's, it's a great opportunity. We'll have a link at my Northwest or just search for the Department of Neighborhoods front porch blog. What will they be doing with these stories? That's the thing. They're not sure they're going to develop that. Depending what kind of oh. stories they get, they may invite people and like sort of tease out further uh, expressions of these. Sometimes they do big special events where they gather people together. I offered to go around the city neighborhood by neighborhood and hold special events like in parks and stuff and like in the snow and the rain. There'd be just me there you in a field with a love... microphone getting electrocuted yes. with a really bad PA system and yes. that's what I want to work on. That's so. great. You would love hearing all of these stories. Oh yeah, like I was thinking about stuff like with neon signs. Oftentimes you'll find a map that'll locate where the sign is located, uh-huh. right? like the old PI Globe for instance. Uh-huh. Maybe there's a place you can put on a map where the best place to see a neon sign is. You know, oh. sort of weird kind of like, try to take some of these old stories and think of, cut them up and slice them up a different ways just so they're more interesting sounds great so where do people go again uh department of neighborhoods front porch blog we'll have a link at my northwest at the all over the map section later this morning thank you felix let's talk about raccoons right now i have a fondness for my neighborhood wildlife the bunnies the squirrels the raccoons especially but uh, often my oohs and ahs are met with disgust so many see these animals as disease-infested rodents. But are they? I spoke to Columbia University PhD student Laura Dudley-Plimpton about her research up and close and personal with raccoons who live in another urban setting, New York City, which began in the thick of the COVID pandemic. There had been a lot of reports, especially around the time that we had started that work of SARS-CoV-2 showing up in deer. Um, I don't know if you remember the reports of them in like the lions or the tigers in the zoo and stuff like that. So there was a lot of spillover that was potentially happening between people 
into wildlife or domestic pets and things like that. And so that's why we got curious in New York City, where we have these really abundant populations of raccoons, rats, cats, all these things um, that people are interacting with on a daily basis without even realizing it. We were looking in raccoons, but also in skunks, possums, mice, cats, uh, sort of all of these really abundant species in New York. And so we're in the process of screening them right now. So far, we haven't found any coronaviruses in raccoons, which is a good good news. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird it's a weird thing when you see it's in deer, but then all of a sudden it's maybe not in deer anymore, or it was in cats and it's not necessarily anymore. And that gets sort of down to some of these species will just differ in their susceptibility to these viruses. And um, as SARS-CoV-2 mutates and as we see new variants, sometimes different wildlife species species may or may not be more or less susceptible to it, to becoming infected with it. What have you found in at least New York City raccoons and does it pose a threat to humans? We have screened them for coronaviruses, um, but we've also screened them for canine distemper virus, which is not a threat to humans, but it is a threat to raccoons and and, uh, skunks um, and dogs and causes a high mortality uh, rate in those species. Um, So it's not a risk to humans necessarily. That's not to say that there aren't pathogens that raccoons can carry that we know exist in the city, but we don't necessarily, we didn't necessarily test for it, like for example, rabies or raccoon roundworm. Um, And those pathogens can be a risk to humans. Um, But For now, our research is primarily on coronaviruses and and canine distemper virus. How much of a threat, though, to humans? Because maybe it's just like the bleeding heart animal lover in me. But when I and I hear people when they see squirrels or they see raccoons, they're like, ah, it's just a disease infected rodent. I don't know why I get offended. Maybe because those animals are cute to me. Is a raccoon digging through our garbage and then us picking up the mess? Does that pose an actual risk to us? The way I like to think about it is Animals carry diseases. We carry diseases too. We're a threat to each other, but only when we come into contact with one another and or we come into contact in a risky way. So it's not necessarily the threat that raccoons carry roundworm and, and that's a threat to human health. It's more of how we're interacting with the areas where raccoons are interacting that could then put our health into question, right? So if we're not having too close of a relationship with raccoons, if we're keeping a healthy distance, a healthy relationship with them, then there's not a risk to us. But if we are, you know, interacting too closely with them, so maybe feeding them, hand feeding them, or um, not managing our trash necessarily well, so that there's a raccoon that's in my yard every single day that sets up a latrine or something in my sandbox, like then those things become risky to our health. So it's not necessarily this to say that wildlife are to blame because of their the pathogens they carry, but more so through our relationship with wildlife and making sure that we have a healthy relationship with them with healthy boundaries. Well, how can we? Direct interactions are probably the easiest ones to address. So trying to limit things like actively feeding wildlife um, or trying to touch wildlife or pet them. I know they're cute, but it's better not to do that. Um, To indirect things like picking up after your dog. Dog feces could carry pathogens that could infect raccoons, that could get them sick, stuff like that. To even just managing how we take out our trash, you know, having a trash bin that closes that a raccoon can't get into. So maybe they exist in our backyard, but they're not eating the things that we eat or they're not handling the things that we've handled. Um, And we are not incidentally then coming into contact with them when we go and take that trash out of the trash can or something like that. And you can read more about Laura Dudley Plimpton's work in The New York Times. The article is called Digging for Secrets from the Raccoons in Your Garbage. I hope that helped.
We have been reporting this week on the lawsuit being filed against Meta, the parent company behind Facebook and Instagram. The suit is being pushed by Washington State's Attorney General Bob Ferguson, along with the AGs of dozens of other states, claiming that the social media platforms are causing harm to young people, specifically their mental health. So Dave and I called up Steve Tapia, who teaches Internet law at Seattle University and has worked with cases like this before. And I asked him to explain the suit. One big question we had for Steve was, aren't social media platforms like Meta protected from any responsibility for the content posted on their sites? That's a very common and actually probably more accurate assessment of how Internet platforms get to play in this day and age than than you may realize. But it does have limits. Um, What you're referring to is commonly called in the business section 230, which is a federal law under the Communications Decency Act, and it insulates them for what third parties do on their platform, but it doesn't insulate them from liability for what the platforms themselves do. So if you're talking about X, you're talking about uh, Meta's products, whether it's uh, Instagram or WhatsApp or Facebook, or if you're talking about even Google in terms of the places where people can input information or even the reviews on Amazon, All of those kinds of things are insulated from liability under Section 230. But if the actual owners of those particular platforms do something, it's a very different story. So what are they accused of doing? What's this? What's behind the the charge that it's uh, addicting to kids? There are there are three things that the attorneys general are complaining about. Uh, One is that uh, that they're collecting data from children under 13 and in particular from uh, applications that Meta maintains that are geared towards children under 13. Uh, they're done a variety of different things that they uh, are very much in trying to entice 13-year-olds and unders to spend as much time as possible on on their apps. Instagram probably is the is the most notable example. Uh, there is a federal law that has very strict requirements, including parental consent, about collecting data from children that are 13 and under. That's one pocket of what they're being accused of. The second pocket of what they're being accused of is really sort of goes to the heart of the way social media works, which is social media tries to keep people on their platforms as long as possible. Uh, If we were going to be looking, for example, on stories on Cairo News, on Taylor Swift, for example, it would allow us to go pretty deep down the rabbit hole by showing us continuing versions of the same story. It has a confirmation bias in that it keeps on sending you the kinds of things that you look for. The internet does that as well. So if you, you know, as we- So does Netflix. uh, Yes, they all work very much the same way. Um, Amazon does too. I remember the first time I bought something from Amazon uh, back in the nineties and it showed me other things that I might be interested in. I was completely freaked out. Uh, now we've gotten used to it, but it, but they're, the the data analytics that run be, uh, most of our the platforms that we're familiar with all work the same way. They they try to give you more of what it is that you want. And in the Meta's case, the the particular problem that Frances Hagen, who when she d- delivered the set of documents and presented her information to Congress, uh, the thing that she highlighted was that uh, if you're of a certain age and of a certain capability of being influenced, uh, you're going to really, really take what's happening on those social media platforms to heart and really adjust your behavior. And the example that she used was primarily uh, younger teenage girls in terms of body image and eating habits and 
fashion, uh, in, in taking the clues from Instagram in particular. This is Seattle University law, pro- uh, internet law professor Steve Tapia. It led me to think about my days growing up, seeing certain magazines, telling young women to look a certain way. Another connection that can be made with this lawsuit is uh, the one that was filed against Big Tobacco, which had a huge impact on the way cigarettes are sold. And of course, more recently, the class action lawsuit against Juul Products, which led to a big settlement from the e-cigarette company in light of kids getting addicted to these devices. So another question we wanted to ask Steve was why those tobacco and nicotine-based lawsuits had success and why it's so so much more difficult to have success against a social media platform. The our society unfortunately treats treats mental health and mental illness in an entirely different way than yeah. physical health and yeah. physical illness. If somebody's walking around putting something in their body, it's relatively easy to see and we have a tendency to take have a bias towards action in those situations. But if somebody's damaged on on the inside or doing something that will damage themselves in, in terms of their psyche, or their psychology, we, we have a very ambivalent um, set of rules and even ethical rules in terms of how much we're willing to interact. What about the kids who have died by suicide because of this? I mean, is that not physical? Yes, but the 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 cases, for example, the most notorious case of the young woman who uh, uh, caused her boyfriend, according to the court records, uh, to commit suicide by asphyxiating himself in his truck. It was a perfect example of how we started this conversation of Section 230. It wasn't the platform that said, oh, you should go ahead and commit suicide. It was two users on the platform. And that makes it different than the specific interactions that Facebook is accused of having in particular and Instagram is, is accused of doing in this particular lawsuit. That's the actual platform themselves doing things. And therefore, and therefore the attorney generals are trying to hold them accountable rather than the interactions between two users. So in your opinion, where do you see this case going? It sounds to me like we're not going to get any money. We're not getting any accountability from the companies, but we might get new laws. Well, the hope is that we get accountability. Meta in particular has a a pretty spotty record in terms of complying with the existing data privacy laws. And even though they've made lots of promises to to actually correct themselves and what it is they do going forward, the actual evidence is that they haven't done that much. And the attorney general's lost patience. They've been talking to Meta behind the scenes before these lawsuits were filed for months. And, and didn't achieve a, a positive result. And so they view, view, viewed this as a very much a last resort and the last hope that they could get to actually have Meta stand up and do what they've said they were going to do. Why is Meta so reluctant to do this? Uh, uh, I, why would they do this unless they felt that it would endanger their entire business model and profitability? Well, you, you're, the answer is in your question. We don't know for sure, obviously. I don't have insight to what they're actually thinking, but just based on the circumstantial evidence, it seems relatively clear that Meta's business is keeping us on their platforms, collecting as much data as they possibly can about it, about us, and using it either to A, sell ads, or B, sell their data to off, out the back end, as they, we saw they did in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Making any predictions on who wins? There'll, there'll be something that it will happen. They're asked, the attorney generals are asking for such severe penalties uh, although the complaint is wide open in terms of what it is that they're asking for, I mean, they're asking for substantial amounts of money and also for uh, uh, instructions from the court, injunctive relief, if you will, that will require Meta to really step up and comply with the various 
data law. Something positive will happen for the attorney generals, whether they will get everything they want. That'll be a different story, but that's just the nature of the beast. That is Steve Tapia teaching Internet law at Seattle University about the meta lawsuit brought by our attorney general and many other states. At 737, time for your daily dose of kindness now brought to you by Robert W. Baird. An elementary school in Macomb County, Michigan, is working to inspire more kindness and reading. We have a wonderful group of kids at Higgins who are always spreading kindness. A few weeks ago, the staff at Francis A. Higgins Elementary in Chesterfield installed a book vending machine. Principal Susan Trebicock tells ABC affiliate WXYZ TV. We brought it in one day and it had a big yellow ribbon on it and kids were drawn to it right away. It was beautiful and sparkling and clean and now it's marred up with lots of little fingerprints. <laughs> in order to earn a token to buy a book from the machine, students perform an act of kindness. I normally choose random books so I instead of just reading the same I wanted to see a new adventure. The reason why I chose this book is because there's a movie of it and I like the movie. The vending machine, now custom painted with the school mascot, sits in the hallway near the library. We compete a lot these days with video games and and YouTube and all of that, so we wanted to get books in the hands of kids and just get them excited about reading. Students can also earn a book by meeting their academic goals, like fourth grade student Adriana. I was just working really hard, and Miss Bika said I was putting a lot of effort into what I did in school. Amy Brender is a literacy specialist for Higgins Elementary. She says the program has the potential to significantly boost students' reading engagement. There is a big correlation between students who read more and their their vocabulary development. So we obviously want to encourage that vocabulary development because it will cross over to all aspects of their life. Junie B. Jones, Amelia Bedelia, um, we have Diver Wimpy Kid in there, um, some of the pug books and what What's exciting about that is if we can get them hooked on one, then typically a student will want to stay in that series. In the few weeks the school has had the vending machine, they've already given out dozens of books, which means dozens of acts of kindness. Really cool idea. My favorite vending machine in elementary school was the Apple machine. Did you have one of those, Sully? Well, no, we didn't have vending machines. Oh, man. It was this big, giant box with a big window, and you could see the... so Washington State, right? It was yeah. 25 cents to get, I believe it was Golden Delicious was always oh. kept in there. How Boy, often did they good. rotate the stock? I don't know. I'm a little it was popular though. Like there was always a line at recess to get the apple. That was Sunnyside Elementary. Was that the way to go. just kind of kiss the teachers? You know what? Just buy an apple, stick it on the desk. No, we ate them. Oh, okay. Chomped just, down I'm them. just trying to figure out what your angle was. Really healthy snacks. Oh. But now I'm thinking a book, <laughs> a book vending machine. That'd be great for all kids. Welcoming G. Scott from the G. and Ursula Show to Seattle's Morning News to talk Seahawks. I know this weekend they're taking on the Cleveland Browns. They're going to be in their 90s throwback Come uniforms. On. I just Googled. I have to say, I really like the 90s look. Ooh, it's good. It's it bad. It's my favorite color blue. It looks like cerulean. All right. Before we get into the Seahawks and before we get into the throwback unis that are going to be wearing, mm-hmm. are any of you in the... Invested in, or maybe thinking about bringing back some of the things that you wore in the '90s. Thank you. Come this on. This has been a topic of conversation that I keep bringing up with my friends. Going, I feel like the fashion that's out right now that that the young people are wearing, yeah. right, with the baggier jeans and the flannel and the choker necklaces, all of that. This is what 
I wore back in junior high, high school. But did I? No, I was too afraid to like wear the trendy stuff. I felt like I had to wear something different. So I feel like the millennials, whatever moms are now reliving uh-huh. what they were denied in their childhood. Facts. We're just wearing whatever we, we want to feel like we're back in the 90s. We mm. feel cool now. Yeah. So, yes. Absolutely. This is what's great. Uh, wear what you want to wear. Sully, ain't that what you do? Yeah, I'm wearing the same stuff I wore stopped. in the 90s. He never stopped. I mean, I wore, I wore, I wore golf shirts and plaid khaki pants since the 80s. That hasn't changed. I mean, seriously. Probably not going to wear the Jankos. Probably not going to go that far. Yeah. Remember those pants, the Janko pants? Yes. Isn't oh, that what they were yeah. called? Oh, yeah, the big wide leg. But uh, I am enjoying sort of the, it's back to Seattle grunge is what it feels like. Which I am so jealous. I was not living in Seattle in the 90s. Now. Life was good here. You guys talk about everything, the grunge, the Nirvana, Nirvana, all that kind of stuff. Join us. I get to get it to this Seahawks game. Okay. Because this Sunday, it is throwback. They are going to be wearing those uniforms. But when you get past the uniforms, you got to get to the game, Katrina. You got to get to the game. And getting to the game, it is four and two against four and two. This oh. ain't the same Cleveland Browns team. Deshaun Watson, who is their starting quarterback, is not going to be playing. Oh. The doctors told him no, and finally he listened to no. We've had a lot of when those lately. When it comes lately. to the team, huh? Uh, we've had a lot of. <laughs> Wait, say no, that again. No, no, no. When, 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 no, no. When it comes to the doctor. When Come to the doctor. He said he, he they listened. They told him not to uh, play, and he, he listened to him say, "No, he's not going to play." Anyway, um, PJ Walker is going to be their quarterback. PJ Walker, this guy, right? Is he good? He, I mean, kinda. He was playing in the XFL, Colleen. Oh. He came and beat the San Francisco 49ers, Ooh. beat the Indianapolis Colts. So my man is two and zero. So they are coming to town where the offense is okay. But their defense is really good, led by a man named Miles Garrett. Miles Garrett is the kid on their team, the same as the kid in the neighborhood where you wanted to check the child's birth certificate. Have you ever been a part of a team and you're like, hmm? That baby, I need to see his birth certificate. Is he 14? Are you sure? This, yeah. this is a man that years ago, one season, tore off a Pittsburgh Steelers helmet and started mashing it over the man's bare yeah. head. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's a violent man. Let me just say, let me get off the record real quick. Um, I saw him after that incident that you're talking about, Dave. I saw him in Las Vegas and I was with my wife. And we was in the same vicinity. Did you did you curve him? Did you did you avoid? I mean, well, I really felt insecure. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm with my wife. He with his lady. Yeah. And man, I, you know, I was just a little insecure being around that man so big. Insecure. He was, yes, yeah, yeah. No, he was, he's, he was he, really big. Because some sometimes men will walk up to other men and we kind of size folks up. Yeah. We just kind of do that. I don't know. That's just kind of what you do. I sized him up and I said to myself, self. He would destroy you. <laughs> Six four two seventy five. He could wow. also jump clean over of any of us. Yeah, he, no he has a vertical, a no. vertical jump that would okay. astound you. That's a no, scary no, dude. No, no drooling fat. over the Cleveland Browns players. Let's talk about our Seahawks. They're gonna beat them. Right? I mean, they in them throwback uniforms. Everybody is healthy, ready to go. Uh, Frank Clark is back for this Seahawk team. This defense right now for the Seattle Seahawks are really good. They're not. They're being talked about. As one of the top five defenses in the league right now. But the good news is, is I'm glad they plan at home. They get some of the mama's home cooking on Sunday. It's going to be happening. I'm super excited. I have been having my throwback outfit. 
It's been ready for like three months. You're not wearing it right now? Oh, no. No, you're saving it for I the I cannot yeah. wait to break it out. And so, anyway, that's going to happen this Sunday. It's I wish be a- I could ask you, if we had time, why we keep going back to our exes like Frank Clark. What What is it about the Seahawks that loves to bring back the exes? Because well, you already know how, you know, the chemistry's there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's you, you a guaranteed win. It's, 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 it's a guarantee. For one game only. Uh, <laughs> good you, morning, G. y'all. See y'all later. Wait, wait, wait. You didn't give us a score. Oh, Seahawks, 27-21. Okay, 27-21. We got it. Such good memories watching Vacation. Uh Well, with the high cost of travel this holiday season, we asked Cairo News Radio's Mickey Gomez to find out if family gatherings, which can sometimes be awkward, are worth it. What'd you find out, Mickey? Well, you know, the consumer man Herb Weisbaum tells us people are already holiday shopping. AAA says the holiday travel deals end next week. And then there are some asking the question, should I travel home for the holidays to visit my toxic family? And you, you're the <laughs> Nick Norman, licensed social worker for Mindful Therapy Group, says speaking up is crucial, but takes courage. Give yourself permission to, to pass on the visit for the holidays. Yeah. Hmm. Pass on the holidays. Tell your family, hey, it's not going to happen this year. But if you absolutely have to go home. You can set some ground rules saying, hey, you know, we as a family don't have a great track record of holidays of talking about politics. So I'd like to propose that we don't touch on that so that we can enjoy our holidays again. And it's actually That's an so election fun. year. So, yeah, I, yeah. one year, I don't, I don't remember what it, it was a few years ago. It was before the pandemic, I think. But we hosted for Christmas. And because it was my house, I put a sign on the door that just said, shoes off, no politics. Did it work? Yes. It actually did. People laughed. People were like, are you serious? But mm-hmm. people, my family, <laughs> I say people. Um, but it worked. And I just for me, I didn't want to have that individual conversation with everybody. But I did want to set some ground rules for a holiday. We can talk politics any other day of the year. Can we just eat, drink mm-hmm. and be merry today? That's right. Yeah. That's right. What about you, David? You were telling me earlier that um, that this is a this is a sore subject for you. Yeah, honestly, because uh, I I just got married and my I'm the youngest of seven kids Mm -hmm. and Thanksgiving is sort of our big, big holiday in my family. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone gathers at my parents uh, house over in Silverdale. And for the last several years, for different reasons, be COVID or, you know, people get sick or whatnot, um, there are members who won't show up for various reasons. And last year it was me. And that's because. In part, not to get too deep into it, in part, it's really difficult to bring a uh, a new person into the family, mm-hmm. especially as the youngest, uh, as the youngest son. My mother is very protective over me. And there's a lot of friction there uh, bringing mm. another woman into the yeah. into the house. And so um, I think and, and you'll probably touch on this later, Mickey. Not only setting up boundaries, but having an exit plan is really yes. important. That's something that we're doing this year. We're going to mm-hmm. go over. We're going to. Go in with uh, optimism and hoping that everything's going to go well. But if need be, you got to have that exit plan. Yes. Are you going to have like a secret signal? Uh, maybe, yeah, cool. yeah. Or cer- certainly, we have a secret getaway that we're we're prepared to go to I if we have that. to. Yeah, if laying down boundaries doesn't work, have a backup plan, have an exit strategy, and if all else fails, know who your backup people are, who your allies are, and don't be afraid to tell them how you feel, your allies, especially if things go sideways. Norman says that this is your sign 
to exit the party. Pay attention to your own inner state. If you find yourself beginning to slip into anxiety, fear, shame, anger, take the time to take a time out so that you can respond in in a way that's going to be more authentic to who you are. He says staying with your allies is best or even getting a hotel, an Airbnb. So that way you have a safe place to go in the event that things hit the fan. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a, Sully, do you have drama in your family? Tons. Really? <laughs> Matter of fact, I just texted, I just found out that my uh, my niece is, is, she set her wedding date, uh, which breaks a huge family rule, which is don't do it during football season. And it's next, it's going to be one of Tommy's last home football games next year. So, so what do I going. do? Well, you're going to the football game. I, <laughs> yeah, that'll I'm make for interesting Christmas conversations this fall. <laughs> what about you, Katrina? Do you have family drama? Are you going home for the holidays? Uh, no family drama. I'm not going home for the holidays. What we done since I moved out here to Washington is we've tried to like shift it to either like my husband and I will host or we'll go over to them to host but COVID mm-hmm. upended all of our plans mm-hmm. so this year we're just gonna sit tight at home. And we're as doing precious the same. as family is too I will have to say especially Katrina since you're starting to build your family you have your son and all of that sometimes it's nice just to cozy at home with just your partner and your kids. Yes. And it's no offense to the family, but like sometimes you just want to cozy up with the family you're creating. Yeah, and that's okay too. Yeah. My kids actually looked at me this year as a, a, a couple of weeks ago and said, please tell us that we're not traveling for the holidays. Yeah. Please. Especially after last year's travel debacle. I said, guys, we're staying home. They were so happy. We're also relatable with our family drama. Good luck mm-hmm. to everybody. If any other advice comes our way, we'll pass it on. Thank you, Mickey. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.